Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 976. I've had a couple weeks off, so we did finish the first main sentence in Ephesians, so we got that far. And I'll give you a, a, a brief introduction to Ephesians to get into what comes next. This uh, introduction comes from Lesson Maker Outlines. I've got lots of books or resources with outlines, some of which are too detailed, some of which are not detailed enough. They sum up all of Ephesians with the entire book or the entire letter with two or three points. But this one is just perfect for chapter 1. So what we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, a very simple introduction salutation. And part of the point behind this and part of the way Ephesians ends is it very much suggests it was not a letter written particularly or exclusively to the Ephesians. It is written to churches in the area. There are not a, a lot of personal greetings. There's not a lot of reminiscing. There's not a lot of background information because Paul wrote the letter. It may have started with the Ephesians, but Paul wrote a letter that he intends to be circulated around. And so it's a little more general than some of his other letters, which are, are very personal. The letters to the Corinthians, it just oozes a lot of background story. Not so with Ephesians. So you've got a very simple introduction in the first two verses. And then you have Paul's first sentence. Paul's first sentence comprises verses 3 to 14. Now, our English Bibles break it down into multiple sentences, but the way Paul wrote it, it was one, and that's the sentence we finished. In that sentence, Paul praises God for his pre-planned blessings. He starts from before the creation of the world, he ends with the age to come, and that encompasses all of the blessing of God for his people. And that's what we finished a couple of weeks ago. We're now ready for, after the introduction, which I'm not counting, after the first sentence, we're now ready for Paul's second sentence. And as you might expect, his sentence, second sentence comprises the rest of the chapter. It's another very long sentence. It's verses 15 to 23. Now Paul prays that we would understand those blessings he just praised God for. So he starts with praise to God, and then he recognizes this is probably a difficult sentence. And this is probably, people are going to struggle over some of these words. And churches are going to form different denominations over these words. And emphasize different things because of these words. And so Paul prays that we would understand the blessings that he just recognized are bestowed upon God's people by his grace. So we've got verses 15 to 23. But first, let's back up one more time. What are the blessings that Paul wants us to understand? I'm going to reduce it uh, because I don't want to read the entire sentence again, verses 3 to 14. It looks something like this. God's blessings are he chose us. He predestined us for adoption. We have redemption through his blood, uh, Christ's blood, making known to us the mystery of his will. We were made, and we have become, or we have, an inheritance. And we were sealed with the, the promised Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of promise. Those, uh, that's a, a basic outline of all that he praised God for. And now he's praying that the church would really own and embrace and begin to understand the depth of what God has done by his grace. 
Each of the blessings linked to God's grace are derived from God's purpose to place us in Christ. God can promise all those things. He can announce all those things, not because what he knows about us, but because what he knows about his son. What he knows about his own gracious purpose. And he knows Christ is not going to fail where we would fail. If God said, assemble your best team, and here's what I'm laying out as the promise before you, if you will only, and whatever the if only is, we would fail. But God's promises, his blessings, his grace is wholly found in Christ, and Christ doesn't fail. And so that's, that's what, where we're starting from as we build on verses 15 to 23. In verses 15 to 23, Paul prays we would understand the significance of these blessings. I want to read through it one time, and then we'll break it down piece by piece after that. We're not going to do the whole thing in one week, by the way. Not that I really expected anybody thought that. But at any rate, verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the uh, second sentence in its entirety, Paul's prayer. That's Paul's prayer sheet. Let's break it down piece by piece. He starts off with, for this reason. What's the reason that prompts this prayer? It's for this reason I'm praying. What is the reason? It goes back, commentators are pretty united on this, it goes back to the first sentence, but especially the last part of the first sentence. It's for what Paul has just described, that it's for that reason he now prays that you would really understand the significance of what God has done. So let's move verse 15 over and add verses 13 and 14 before. Paul said, in him, you also, and he's talking to Gentiles. Because before that, he's talking about we who were the first to believe. The gospel is to the Jew first and also the Gentile, but it was us first. We were the first to hope in Christ. But to you also, you heard the word of truth. You heard the gospel of your salvation. You believed in him. And you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the Jews' inheritance. He's the, the Holy Spirit's the, the guarantee of what God has promised to Israel and the guarantee of what God has promised to Gentiles. Until we acquire the possession of it to the praise, to the praise of His glory. And for the, that reason, He's giving thanks to God. You've been included. You're like us. 
Our hope is in Christ. Your hope is in Christ. We share a common salvation. We, we share a common righteousness, not our own. And he wants the Gentiles to understand just how dramatically exciting that ought to be, that you could be declared righteous in the eyes of an altogether holy God. So that's the reason it goes back to verses 13 and 14. It's you Gentiles, which we're going to find out in chapter 2. Nobody saw that coming. You were foreigners and strangers and alienated. You didn't know beans about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now God has brought you in. But that's not, all, that's not the only reason why Paul prays. If I put verse 15 back where it belongs, he says, because I, and also could be added there, some Bible versions have it, some don't. So for this reason, looking back, Paul gives thanks, but also because I also have heard of your faith and your love. So looking back, I know what you've done, but in the present, I know about your faith and your love. Now, Paul planted the church in Ephesus, and if my memory serves, he was there three years. So it's not like Paul didn't know that there was an Ephesian church. He, he knew that. He was in, God used him to plant the church in Ephesus. But where Paul is writing right now from prison, he's heard about their continued faithfulness. He's, he's heard about their growing in faith. He's heard that they're still doing well and that they're demonstrating love toward all the saints. But because it's a circular letter, Paul's also hearing about faith in Laodicea. So far as we know, Paul never visited Laodicea, but he's heard about their faith. Paul's, Paul's heard about the faith of the church in Colossae. Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians, but so far as we know, I don't think Paul ever spent time in Colossae. So Paul has heard about this letter that he's writing. He's heard about the faith, the, the faith that different individuals have in these different places. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward the saints. So faith in the Lord Jesus cannot be separated from love for other Christians. Impossible to do. You tell me you have faith in God and you don't love your brother in Christ, you don't have faith in God. They are inseparable. It is impossible to love the God who created the heavens and the earth, who gave us his scripture, who sent his promised Holy Spirit, and not care about Christ's church. Not care about your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's impossible. 1 John makes that very clear throughout the letter, but especially in chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, and because I don't want to read the, the whole chapter, then I'm going to skip down to the end of the, the chapter, verses 20 and 21. The verses are on the screen. They look like this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, though we have loved God, but that's not the essence of it. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And then the end of the chapter finishes this way. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Inseparable. Faith in Christ and love for fellow, fellow believers. Love for brothers and sisters in Christ. That's exactly Paul's point in verse 15. I've heard about your faith. And you've demonstrated it by your love for one another. Two things that cannot be separated. What we are going to find out in Ephesians is that if we are Christians, whatever differences we may have... What unites us is far greater than what might otherwise divide us. You could put it another way. You could say, however much you may have in common with somebody who is not a believer, you like the same sports teams, uh, you like the same restaurants, uh, you have the same political views, you had the same response to uh, COVID-19, you had the same response to uh, whatever people were saying you ought to do. Whatever you may have in common with them, if you don't have common faith in Christ, there's more that separates you than, than unites you. So then turn it back the other way. However many different political views we may have, or preferences, or whatever different restaurants we like, or whatever authors we like, or whatever our response was to COVID, or whatever our response is to politics and government, however we may differ on that, if we are in Christ, we have far more that unites us than divides us. And now I'm going to dabble in a little bit more of my own personal persuasion and take on this so you're, you can evaluate it or throw it out for if you need to or, or whatever. But I would suggest that, you know, when COVID first happened, nobody knew, what was, nobody knew the severity of it. So I don't think there was one right response to COVID, especially when it first happened. But I, it seemed to me very early on, the church needed to start gathering together because what happened was when we aren't reminding ourselves of what we have in common, social media blew up with what we differ on. And it got pretty ugly. And I know a lot of people that, you know, my brother stopped social media. He, like, got out of social media. My son Ryan's out of social media because of all the language and all the tempers and all the emotion that's being poured out. And nobody's reminding ourselves what we have in common because we aren't even meeting together. I think it was right at the time to not meet for a time, but I think very quickly the church needs to gather because if we don't, we forget what we have. Ephesians chapter 4 is exactly this point. So just skip over a page in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 to 6 will be there later this year. And, well, maybe. I guess we'll see. Ephesians, but no matter how slow I am, I'm faster than Ray Clark. He's been seven years in Job. He was in Job last year when he came, and he's still in Job. So if you think I'm slow, you need to listen to Ray. But what a great preacher. I love listening to Ray. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 reads this way. Verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body. There's one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's why the church gathers. Here we are to worship. Here we are to remember what it is that unites us in spite of all the things that may tear us apart. And when the church doesn't do that, unfortunately, it looks kind of messy. Messier than what I would hope. And that certainly included me. So, Paul has a second reason. Not only because of what came in verses 13 and 14, but also because I've heard of your faith and love, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And then he says, remembering you in my prayers. Let's look at what Paul prays. It starts off this way. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's kind of a, a best stopping place I can find at this particular juncture. Uh, the sentence goes on. Let's start off with what's the main request? What is it Paul's praying for? It's all of that. Lots of pieces and they're moving. And it's complex. But at the essence, at the very root of it all, what is Paul praying for these Gentile believers? That they would really appreciate all the blessing they have in Christ because of God's grace. What is he praying for? The answer is, it's knowledge of him. Knowledge of God. That it would increase. Colossians even makes this more clear. Colossians is a letter very similar to Ephesians. There's a, a lot of shared themes. What Paul wants is that we have increased knowledge of who God is. His character, His will, His attributes, what He's conferred upon us by His grace. The prayer is that our knowledge of Him would be more than what it is now. This is exactly what Jesus prayed in the garden before He died on a cross. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus starts off this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's eternal life, to know God. I thought eternal life was walking on streets of gold. I thought eternal life was a place where there's no crying or, or death or disease or sorrow. It is those things. But Jesus' prayer for eternal life is that they would know God. That you, and now Paul's praying that we would know God better than what we do. Let's talk about knowledge a little bit. Knowledge is a tricky word because it means something so different in our culture than what it meant to a Hebrew. What it, and by Hebrew, I mean what it means in the Bible. What the Jews and what the Bible means by the word knowledge is not how we typically use the word knowledge in our culture. So let me contrast the two. With a, a Western mindset with a Hebrew mindset. In a Western mindset, we're a Western country, America. In America, knowledge is impersonal information and facts. 
you're going to win it at, at uh, the trivia game, whatever that trivia game was. Uh, there are certain other games like that. It's, it's just you have this information, facts, knowledge. That's, that's knowledge in Western society. But in the Bible, a Hebrew mindset, knowledge is implemented and applied information and facts. It's a big difference between Western thinking and what they meant in the Bible when they talked about the word knowledge. It's much more intimate in the Bible. It's much more detached in Western culture. I'm going to give you the same thing a couple more ways. In Western thinking, a person may or may not be acting in accordance with what he or she knows. Probably everybody here said something along the lines of, I know I shouldn't do that, but... I know that I know I uh, shouldn't have said that. That's how we use the word knowledge. I know it's not good for me. I just can't stop. I, I, I'm just not. I know I shouldn't. That's how we use it. But in the Bible, a person must appropriate the information for it to be considered knowledge. If if you're not acting upon that bit of knowledge, you don't know it. No, you really don't know it. In Western thinking, we talk about head knowledge and heart knowledge. Head knowledge is, yeah, you know it up here. You just haven't implemented it from your heart. But I don't think you're going to find that distinction in the Bible. For many reasons, one of which I guess we'll find out in a little bit later. Because here it talks about the eyes of your heart enlightened. So in our, in our culture, and I get it, I mean, there's some value in that. I, I know what's trying to be communicated. You can have a head knowledge or a heart knowledge. That's just not the way the Bible phrases it. The way the Bible phrases it is dead faith or living faith. A dead faith would be equivalent to our head knowledge. Yeah, you know it. You're just not acting upon it. The Bible says, you know what, we, you know what James calls that? He calls it dead faith. It's not really faith at all. It's dead. Nothing's happening. There's no result. It's not producing anything. One last one. In Western mindset, we say things like, don't just be a knower of the word, be a doer of the word. Don't just know it, do it. But the Bible doesn't say, doesn't have this contrast between you could know it without doing it. That's impossible in the Bible. In the Bible, it looks like, don't be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. See, the Bible would never concede the point, oh yeah, you know it, you just don't do it. No, the Bible would say, you don't know it. All you've done is heard it. But because you're not doing it, all you've done is heard it. You don't know it. That's the distinction. That's the difference between Western thinking and biblical thinking, or the biblical context. So summarized, it looks like this. Biblical knowledge is not merely the accumulation of impersonal, unengaged facts. Quite the opposite. Biblical knowledge is the cultivation of a relationship based on truth. It's the cultivation of a relationship. And this is borne out. Once you see it in the Bible, it, it becomes very clear uh, the older you are, it's probably more clear because back in the day, people old like me, we all grew up with the King James Bible. And it, it uses language like Abraham, or Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. It wasn't that he knew the facts of birds and bees. It's talking about a cultivated relationship. It's talking about a certain intimacy. It's talking about a certain involvement. And she conceived and bore a child. The Lord says... 
to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. It didn't mean the Lord was like, who knew there were Egyptians? Who knew there were Babylonians and Assyrians? Who knew that there were people groups scattered all over the world? I thought I only, I only knew about you guys. What he's saying is I didn't have this intimate, cultivated relationship with all these nations of the earth. I had it with you. Jesus says at the last day to some, depart from me, I never knew you. It doesn't mean he didn't know they existed. It doesn't mean that he didn't know every thought and intent of their heart. But there was no cultivated relationship between Christ and that individual. In the Bible, the word knowledge is much more intimate than merely the accumulation of certain facts. Let me build upon this cultivation of a relationship. It cultivates knowledge of who God is, an increased knowledge of Him, and the more we know about who God is and His character and what He's done and what He intends to do, as that is cultivated, it results in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love toward all the saints. So you, I, could, I could espouse my theology to you all day long, and you could espouse yours to me. And we could think we are so knowledgeable and we're growing and we're advancing, but if it doesn't result in, in greater love for people around me, I don't know. I haven't gotten to first base about what God wants me to know. If my knowledge causes me to hate my brother more than love my brother, if it causes me to remove myself from my brother rather than be drawn to my brother, then it's not knowledge from God. God's knowledge from God causes me to love and adore and worship and obey Christ more than I have and love the people that God has brought into the church. Kind of like what we're talking in Sunday school. Where Ananias is told to, uh, uh, to go to Saul. He's a chosen vessel of mine. If you're a Christian, I'm looking at a whole room of chosen vessels. And we may have a lot of differences. Some of you, I heard Phil's message. I heard he's a Cardinal fan. We may have a lot of differences, but what we have in Christ is far more important than what we have that could possibly divide us. That's why the church gathers, to remind ourselves of what we have in common. Several dangerous attitudes. The first dangerous attitude is to have little appetite to have knowledge of him. No dis a complacency. Not, I don't need to know anymore. I know enough. That would be, I love my brother enough. I have faith in Christ and his character enough. I don't need any more. Paul's prayer is that we would know more than we do. Paul's prayer is you don't know as much as you think you know. And I'm praying that you would know more than you know. More than you think you know. So that's one dangerous attitude to have very little appetite to know God more. The second is a misplaced appetite. And I'm having, underneath that is a, a missing appreciation and comprehension. What I mean by that is the opposite. One is like, I'm just not interested. I have no desire. I'm complacent. I'm apathetic. I don't want to know. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to gather with the church. It's not that important to me. The other is, yes, I want to know God more. I already know the Bible. Give me something new. Give me something fresh. Teach me something that the church can't teach me. I want to experience God in this whole new personal level. That's a misplaced appetite because all that God wants us to know is already given, us, given to us in his word. Paul isn't praying that the church would have a second blessing. 
Paul isn't praying that they would get something more of the Holy Spirit than what has already been given them uh, as a guarantee of all that God has promised to do. Paul's prayer is that Christians will more fully comprehend the blessings they already have received. If you think you've got just that first sentence down pat, I don't think you know as much as you think. Because it's mind-boggling what God has done in Christ in verses 3 to 14. Paul's prayer is that we would appreciate that and understand the significance of that more than what we already do. What is needed or required for this knowledge of God to be increased is God giving his spirit. God giving his spirit. But it's very interesting that some Bible translations don't have a capital S for spirit. It's a small s. So, for example, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I read, as much as I had time for, uh, different commentators and scholars that advocate for the Holy Spirit. God would give us His Holy Spirit. And others that say that God would give us, as Christians, a spirit of wisdom. It's really... I, I can't decide between the two. There's good arguments for both. Good reasons to believe either one. It's the same difference. God's the one doing the giving. If God doesn't give me a spirit of wisdom, I don't have it. Or if God doesn't give me his spirit, who is a spirit of wisdom and revelation, to teach me, I don't have it. The end result is the same, whether, but it's, it's God giving in both instances with the result of having our, the eyes of our hearts enlightened. So I'm, I'm not going to quibble over which of those two you prefer. I don't think there's a huge difference. There is an interesting contrast between the word revelation and the word enlightened. I don't think there's... A, they're complementary, though they're very separate words. The word enlightened means to give light or enlighten. Uh, my prayer, as I study, as I teach, your prayer, as you read your Bible, our prayer is that God would enlighten us, that God's, God would either give us illumination in our hearts so that we would understand God's word rightly or that his spirit would do that work for us. But we've got to read. We've got to read. It's like turning a light on. If it's a very dark place and it's dark outside, there's a huge difference between flipping on the light switch and trying to figure out where the furniture is so you don't stub your toe. So that's the word or enlightened, the word revelation is not this fresh revelation, something apart from Scripture. It's uncovering what's in Scripture. We get our English word apocalypse from that. The last book of the Bible is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Christ, the uncovering of Christ, the revealing of Christ, the showing Christ for who He really is. Because most of the world thinks of Him as Okay, if they grant that he was a historical figure, he was a revolutionary, he disrupted things, he died on a cross, some people say he rose from the grave, maybe they even grant that, but they have no idea he's king of kings and lord of lords. The church hardly believes he's king of kings and lord of lords because we struggle so much with life circumstances. The apocalypse is we find out who he is in all of his deity and all of his glory, and yet he's a man. And yet he's a man. 
talks about the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, which is an unusual phrase because we don't typically think of our hearts as having eyes. But again, this is a biblical mindset, a Hebrew mindset, not a Western mindset, because in the Bible, all of your thoughts come from your heart. All of your motivations come from your heart. All, all, all that you hope to do, is to, your will is a, is a, comes out of your heart. I think that's so much preferable to thinking thoughts come from the mind and emotions come from the heart, and they're two separate things. In the Bible, your thoughts come from your heart, and they're emotionally charged from the beginning. So that's the way the Bible uses that, and Paul's prayer is that we would have a spirit so that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. Paul's prayer expresses an awareness of a fundamental disability in seeing what is true, especially about God. Now, this is interesting because Paul isn't praying for unbelievers. Not here, not now. Though they need the eyes of their hearts enlightened, they need to be quickened from death to life. We're going to find out about that in chapter 2. Paul's praying for Christians. If you think you're a Christian and now you're so enlightened you don't need the prayer, you don't understand what Paul's teaching Because Paul's praying for Christians, believers, to still have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Because I still have a fundamental disability to understand what is true. And my mind has to be renewed according to what Scripture says, rather than the patterns of this world. Let's flesh this out. Know yourself first is the attitude of the world. Know yourself, love yourself, define yourself. Be who you think you ought to be. Impossible to do if you don't know God. Because we don't start with... In in finding this picture, I found this book. The book is entitled, It All Begins With You. And the subtitle is, Nine Affirmations to Help You Love Yourself and Know Your Worth. Impossible to know yourself if you start with yourself. Which is why you look in society... And you look at what culture is promoting, and it's a disaster. Because starting with oneself is the worst possible starting point. We're fundamentally disabled to understand what is true about ourselves, let alone God. So, by contrast, you've got John Newton, who wrote uh, The Slave Trader, Converted. He wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Was blind, but now I see. He needed God to enlighten his heart, the eyes of his heart, because he was blind, and he knew it. Paul knows it. Rick Warren's book, uh, Purpose Driven Life, and I'm not endorsing Rick Warren and everything that he possibly has said or written, but, but it's an amazing how wonderfully this book starts off. It was written 20 years ago, and it was a bestseller. If I, I mean, I, I, don't re- I didn't research it super well, But uh, some of the later pictures I saw said that it's like the best-selling book. I think it might have used the word in history, but let's say in America, ever. Like this book sold millions of copies. Uh, It was written 20 years ago. If it had been written today, it would not have sold millions of copies. Because our cultural values have changed that much in 20 years. Let me tell you how the book, his first chapter starts, the first chapter is titled, It All Starts With God. That is not where people in America want to start. 
It all starts with God. Then he goes on, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. What a great start. It, all be, it starts with God. And that's not what people want to hear today. Um, next, uh, three passages of Scripture, all of which are fascinating. I'm just going to commend those to you because I want to leave time for comments and questions. Colossians talks about how God rescued us from a kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His light. This contrast between darkness and light in Scripture. Darkness and light. The eyes of our hearts need to be enlightened. We need to be given sight because we're blind. That's a great contrast out of Colossians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 4, since Ephesians isn't hard to go to at all, just skip over another page or two back where we were in chapter 4 a little bit earlier. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 again and verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you, you, you Gentiles, you believing Gentiles, you must no longer walk as the unbelieving Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. That sounds like a headline out of the newspaper. That's what we see in our culture. And Paul says that is not what marks the church. You don't start with you. You don't get to bring yourself into the gospel and keep all of your baggage. God removes the baggage because that baggage is called sin. And you're redefined as a new creature in Christ. And you belong to him. You've been bought with a price. The first Corinthians passage I do want to show you, it does a really good job of how we need enlightened and depart from God's grace, we will never rightly understand God or ourselves. It reads like this. This is from the New English translation. God has revealed these things, or revealed these, these things that he's been talking about. He's revealed these to us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of a man except the man's spirit within him? So too, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, the point is this. If I really want to know my wife better, she has to, un she has to disclose herself. She has to tell me things about herself. I don't get to decide who she is. She tells me what she likes. And I'm like, no, I've decided you want to eat at this restaurant tonight. I've decided this is what you want to wear. I've decided that these are your preferences. That's what our culture does with God. We get to decide who God is. Oh, God embraces everybody, no matter what. If I really want to know what God is like, shouldn't God be able to tell me what he's like? The Spirit of God reveals who God is. I may not like it, but it's what is true. Now... We have not received the spirit of the world, he's talking to the church, 
but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. And we speak about these things, not with words taught us by human wisdom, but with those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. For, an, for me to come to faith in Christ, God's Spirit has to give me an understanding of the gospel that I do not possess uh, apart, from, apart from grace, apart from that Spirit. Let's go back to where we were. Last example is the example of Job. Uh, Job, we're going to end with this and then I'll open it up. Turning your Bible to whatever Bible you're using, Job 21, or if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find Job 21 on pages 430 and 431. And this is just a quick little sidelight. Uh, I think it's an interesting last point about the world's lack of knowledge and their disinterest in knowledge. In Job chapter 21, Job is replying to his friends, and the big debate is on, basically, did Job deserve this? And Job's friends are saying, well, clearly you deserved it, and you've done something hidden and wicked and sinful, or it wouldn't be happening. And Job is like, that's not the way it always works. In fact, sometimes wicked people who do sin and do trespass and don't care about God, sometimes they prosper. So your formula is too simple. So in Job chapter 21 and verse, uh, what have I got on there? Verses 14 to 16. Oh, let me back up to verse 13. Job 21 verse 13 reads, They, speaking of the wicked, they spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to the grave, Sheol. They say to God, depart from us, we don't desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Job is recognizing that the wicked, the wicked are like, we don't. They're prospering. What could God possibly give me that, that is of value to me? I've got all I want. It's kind of like Jacob and Esau story in the Old Testament. Esau was so satisfied with all of his wealth, all of his livestock. He'd done well for himself. He didn't care about any blessing Jacob had. They wound up friends at the end of their life because he was satisfied with all that the world had to offer. And he died without the promise of grace. He died without the promise of a blessing that was given to Abraham. In Job chapter 21, the wicked desire God like a criminal desires to see Brian Earls on the street corner. Not interested in, in, seeing, in seeing justice and righteousness, somebody that represents those things. Not it, the wicked, they don't desire God. And they don't desire God because of their prosperity. Prosperity is such a stumbling block to what is righteous. In fact, the story of the Old Testament is, you can read about it through the Old Testament, the Lord says, I did all this for my people Israel, and in their prosperity they rejected me. In all of the advantages they had, they decided they didn't need God. And that's the problem with the wicked. Prosperity is not a friend to grace, it's an obstacle to grace. 
That's clear in Job. It's clear all through Scripture. I think it's clear in Ephesians too. What are your comments and questions? Rick. Only because of our Western mindset. In Scripture, right. yeah, yeah. In Proverbs, it does say that knowledge, that there was sort of an empty knowledge. Right. Yeah. A worldly knowledge. James co- contrasts a, a worldly wisdom, a worldly or knowledge. I think it uses the word wisdom. Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And th- they have two different end results. But you're right. Yeah, that's exactly right. But even with giftedness, giftedness is, is directly related to God's spirit. You know, it's by one spirit each of God's, God's saints is gifted in a particular way for the encouragement of the whole. Yeah, kind of going back again to what we did in Sunday school. Every believer is a chosen vessel. Every believer. Every believer has a part to play. And the health of a group is only as strong as the participation of every member in that group. Everyone has a part to play. Hannah? We stop making the effort. I mean, one of my favorite stories, I can tell this now. This happened a long time ago, and nobody here is related to the story anymore. But uh, a long time ago, like back when Chad Turner and, and his friends, Tyler Fulcher, and, and uh, I forget the one guy. There, I had a bunch of teenagers that r- really came from unchurched families, and they sat in the front row. Like there were maybe a half dozen teenagers, and they sat in the front row which is so unusual because I grew up in church. The teenagers sat in the back row and they're passing notes and I pass notes times and I remember times where Deacon tapped me on the shoulder and basically like, that's enough. That's, that's what I grew up with in my teenage years. I had a group of teenagers sitting in the front row and they were attuned to the message and they were writing, they would take notes and then there was this this couple that came to church, they'd been to church their whole lives. They were older than me. So they'd been to church, you know, 50, 60 years they'd been going to church. And they wound up leaving, leaving our church. And I talked to them, and they're like, well, the teaching is just, it's over my head. And, and then they told me, they said, but those teenagers sure seem to get something out of it. And I'm like, how is it the teenagers who are from unchurched homes are getting something out of the message and you've been in church 50 or 60 years, and it means nothing to you? I don't know. That seems like a problem. That seems like a problem. I'm not sure the problem is with the Word of God. I think the problem is on the receiving end. And maybe it just starts with, God, begin to teach me more than I know, so that I would know you better than I do, so that my faith in Christ would increase and I would learn to love people more than I do too. In some sense, it's a simple process. But it does require some diligence. And there will be step forward. There'll be a step back. It won't always be easy, but it's worth it in the end. Nobody's going to go to the kingdom of heaven and say, holy cow, if I'd known it was that easy, I wouldn't have read my Bible as much as I did. Or I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have prayed like I did if I realized. You, nobody will go to heaven that way. I think I will enter the kingdom of heaven by the grace of God and say, oh, that I had cared more about what mattered most from the start. Anybody else? Cindy. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Either, that's C.S. Lewis's two ditches. The devil doesn't care which ditch I fall in, so long as I'm in one or the other. 
And I can point my finger at the other ditch and say, oh, those people over there, and I'm in my own ditch. And the devil doesn't care which ditch you're in. I can make too much of a knowledge that merely puffs up, or I can, make, I can reject it entirely, and I'm just in another ditch, rather than pursue what Paul's praying for. Anybody else? Lori. So the, que- the question is, because I'm sure they didn't hear you in the back, uh, like, how does the Bible use words like wisdom, knowledge, understanding, the distinctions? You know, here we have revelation, knowledge, enlightenment. Um, my own understanding out of Proverbs is that those words are used not str- in strict categories. They're very much poetic and interchangeable. You know, uh, I think our culture makes much of the difference between knowing something and having wisdom. I'm not sure that can be borne out in Scripture. The Bible says uh, uh, the beginning of wisdom is to know the Lord, but it also says in the same book of Proverbs, the beginning of knowledge is to know the Lord. Like those, The same statement is used once with wisdom and once with knowledge. So I, I think they're completely interchangeable on some level. Do they have nuances of difference? Probably so, but I don't, I don't think they're strict categories. I don't understand if I'm not engaging with my knowledge. I don't have knowledge if I'm not engaging with my knowledge. I don't have wisdom if I'm not engaging with my knowledge. I think they're very much interwoven, and they can't be separated without ruining the whole. That would be my own take on it. By the way, that word knowledge, which I didn't spend time on, which I really don't plan on spending time on, very strong word. Uh, There's different words for knowledge in the Greek. Probably the most common would be gnosis or gnosis. This is epigenosis. It's an intensified form. This is a very strong, intimate, growing, thriving, active knowledge. That's, that's the word. That, it couldn't be a stronger term, that word for knowledge of him. And just in case there's any doubt, and I mean, Colossians reads this way, where Paul has a, a similar prayer request. Paul says, and so from the... Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul is never going to stop praying that Christians would increase in the knowledge of God. He's never going to stop praying that. I mean, I'm on... You know, I'm past middle age. It's not like I'm going to live to be 126. And I'm thinking, there's so little I know about God. And so little I know about his word. And time is running out. Time is running out. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.